Weighing the Risk was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, we consider various market scenarios to help prepare for the certainty of uncertainty. Each month, we examine top-of-mind economic or market topics and consider the probability and possibility of various scenarios that could impact your investment portfolios. These scenarios are distress testing, like photos are to social media. Remember to look at where you're going to, not what you're going through. Welcome to Weighing the Risk. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, we will weigh some of the potential scenarios and risk in vulnerable residential real estate prices. What could be some of the potential future scenarios for housing prices, and what could that mean for the economy and the stock and bond markets? That's with our guest, Mark Pfeffer, director of the Imperial Fund and co-founder of M2M Capital, also a long-term friend and colleague and a multiple guest on our other podcast, Weighing Machine. Welcome to Weighing the Risk. I'm Rusty Vandeman, the Chief Investment Officer at Orion, and welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me, Rusty. This should be a lot of fun. We do have a pretty serious topic, but we'll have some fun with it today. And I'm sure we'll get a lot of intellectual collisions and creative tension, as we always do. All right. To help set the stage for today's presentation, again, the motivation for this podcast is to help financial advisors and investors prepare for the certainty of uncertainty, to consider what is probable in the markets, but also to consider what is possible. The scenarios that we discuss on this podcast are built off concerns that are top of mind for many advisors and investors. With that said, let us talk about risk and scenarios, and let's bring back in our guest, Mark Pfeffer. Welcome back again, Mark. Thanks again. As you know, a tradition on all the podcasts is that we need a walk-up song. And you know, you've been a guest on a lot of the Wang Machine podcast, but I can't ever recall you doing a walk-up song. I'm sure you did. What is your walk-up song for this podcast? So for this one, I'm going to use My Way uh, by Frank Sinatra. Nice. As you know me well enough, <laughs> I like to do things my way. So yeah, <laughs> I figured that would be a good one. A little different. In the past, I have used the uh, um, from one of the Rocky movies, either the regular Rocky song or the um, what's the main other Rocky song? They always have bam, 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 bam. Nice. You know, yes. our podcasts always do better when guests sing a little bit of the walk-up songs. That's perfect. Yes. Okay. This is destined for so success. We'll use My Way by Frank Sinatra. My Way is one. great. I did think I could do something Dave Matthews Band, but My Way is a great song. So that's awesome. Okay. Well, Mark, yeah. tell us a little bit about your background before we really get this interview rolling. Sure. So I've been in the business for about 35 years or so. I began my career at Goldman Sachs, spent about nine years there. I was in the um, asset management division. I ran municipal, municipal bond portfolios there. I then, with a bunch of colleagues, started a firm called Milestone Capital Management, where I spent seven years. I then had a short stint for about three years in the uh, private client service group at Bear Stearns. I then went back to Milestone in 2005. And then in 2011, um, our firm essentially got lifted out by CLS Investments um, in 2011, was there for about nine years. And then um, after leaving uh, CLS in, at the end of 2020, where I was the CIO, as you know, uh, working under you. And then um, I uh, joined a firm called S64, which was ba based out of the UK. And then most recently, I am now at the Imperial Funds, which I've been at for the last uh, year and a half or so. Uh, we're in the mortgage business, and I have co-founded a firm called M2M Capital, 
um, which also focuses on valuations in the private markets as well as done uh, does capital raising in the private markets. Awesome. So uh, I didn't have experience in that field, so it was a complete change. As a 35-year veteran in the industry, there's also something else about your bio which I think is fascinating, and that is you are still extremely athletic and competitive. Could you tell us about some of your endeavors outside the office? Sure. Um, <laughs> I have been, as you said, very competitive. I still play... I play a ton of softball. Uh, I play ultimate frisbee two or three days a week. I was actually asked to join a professional legends team for guys that are <laughs> 50 or older, and it's it's nice. To, I did turn it down, but I do get guarded a lot of times because I can still run a pretty quick 40, so I get guarded still by a lot of the young kids in a lot of the pickup games. So that's a lot of fun. I play tennis, and uh, I play a lot of pickleball. So uh, I do try to keep very, very active and uh, try to stay in shape. It's not easy as we as we get older. But as you and I both are competitive in work and competitive in play. I think that's just amazing. That's why I brought it up. That's cool. All right, Mark. So before we really dive into the, the, the main subject matter is this is a podcast about risk. How do you define risk and how do you think advisors and investors should think about it? So risk to me is different for everybody. It's risk is taking an investment and making sure that you are not, let's call it quote unquote, in over your head. Meaning you wanna make sure that you are comfortable with your investment decisions and that you're not gonna go in into any investment. I don't care if it's <clears throat> fixed income, I don't care if it's stocks, bonds, doesn't matter what it is, that you are not gonna make a rash decision based on a short-term outcome in the market that happens day to day. So to me, it should be based on a portfolio of investments that you're looking at for the long term. That's awesome, awesome, that's great. All right, so let us think about the leading top of mind issue with many financial advisors and investors right now. And that again is how vulnerable residential real estate prices might be. So are these concerns legitimate and what should advisors and investors be thinking about them? Of course, housing is the biggest asset class for many investors and the pandemic and its related policy decisions did cause a lot of market disruptions. You know, we know that market rates did plummet to record lows, refinancing exploded, home values surged, then sales rebounded to multi-decade highs, housing inventory evaporated. Now rates are at their highest levels, near their highest levels since 2001. So what impact might these concerns have on the economy and the markets? And of course, we're gonna explore kind of a baseline expectation, what a good case scenario is, and what could be a bad case scenario. But before we get to the scenarios, I will ask like five basic questions on the real estate markets. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, cool. So the very first question is, so in your own words, describe the current housing market. And again, there are arguments that it's strong and there's arguments that it's not so strong. So despite softening demand, U.S. home prices have remained elevated. So again, how would you describe the current national residential housing market? So it is a conundrum. I'll use that word. Or, And I almost look at it as the movie Weekend at Bernie's. It's been propped up. That's what I look at it by, as you mentioned, low inventory. We had low interest rates for a low period of time. We had money being thrown at most people by the, from the government. So it was like a, it was like a market on steroids. So those are the, the, the terms that I would use to describe what the housing market has been for the last several years. Um, the, the reason that the housing market has done so well and has been, as you mentioned, low inventory. And right now the, the real estate market has been supported by 
most people having a mortgage that's very, very low. So the impact right now of higher rates is not impacting that many people because over 90% of mortgages are under 6%, 80% are under 5%, 60% are actually under 4%, and almost a quarter of them are under 3%. So it's other interest rate sensitive parts of the economy that have been impacted. Car loans, uh, um, credit card, those are more, more variable in nature or shorter in duration, as opposed to housing when most people have locked in a fixed rate mortgage. So the fact that mortgage rates have gone up have only really been impacting people that have been purchasing houses or looking to purchase houses for the last couple of years. Yep. So before I dive into the next question, it's like it could have been a good walk-up song as something from the soundtrack from Weekend at Bernie's. But I can't remember what the theme song was to that movie, but I know it was a great soundtrack, by the way. So anyway, all right. So getting back to uh, residential real estate. So how vulnerable do you think the residential real estate market is? And and if it is to crack, what can make it go down? What are some potential catalysts? So I think you're already seeing signs. I mean, just to this morning, we saw the NAHAB uh, housing index come out. It dropped by five points after dropping six points last month. So we're theoretically in contraction. Um, we went from 56 to 45 in two months. What are home builders saying? They're seeing less foot traffic. They're, obviously, affordability has been a problem for a long time. But now that mortgage rates are above 7%, they're seeing more of an issue. They've actually had to cut prices by about 6% last month. So you are seeing concessions that are having to be made by builders. What's holding up still the housing market is we discussed low inventory, number one. That's really the big, the big issue and the job market. If people have jobs, they will feel confident about their living situation. And where are they going to let things slide? It's going to be much more on the credit card debt or on a, on, on a, on a, uh, on a car loan than they are before worrying about their 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 housing issue. But for now, I think the housing market is okay. Um, with that said, I do think if the job market, we saw even in California, like even six months ago with all the whole SVB cratering and some tech jobs going, you started to see unemployment go up there and you started to see some cracks in the housing market there. So, and you and I have discussed this for a long time, housing is very regional. So areas that have full employment, or as even uh, as people are getting back into the office now from three days a week to five days a week, those areas like New York City, for example, are still doing very well on the residential side. But other areas, even like Austin, Texas, I think prices are down about 25% over the last year. But many, many areas are still near the top. However, it's very, very difficult to say what a true housing market is because there's virtually no inventory. And I expect that that's going to start to change once the job market, which you are starting to see signs of it slowing, if we start to see unemployment go up. And I don't mean it just going up from 3.5 to 3.8, but you start to get four handles or potentially 5%, I think the housing market will look a lot different than it does now. Wow, that's good stuff. All right, so my next question, I said I was going to ask you five. My next question is kind of like a couple questions in one. But again, you're a fixed income guy with deep experience trading rate markets. And so what is your take on the bond markets and mortgages in particular? And related to all that, of course, is if housing prices stay stable, how will that impact rents, which, of course, flows into the inflation data? There's, how about that? I said one question. I really had like three of them in there for you. 
<laughs> I got to make sure I answer them all. So I'm, I'm going to answer them in reverse order. So I actually think the Fed right now is doing a disservice by continuing to raise rates because, as you know, one third of the CPI is made up of what they call the owner's equivalent rent. And since there's such a low amount of inventory, what's happening, and again, I'm going to use the New York area as one example, but I think I've heard stories anecdotally happening in other places too. Because there's no inventory, people are forced, if you want to call it, to rent. And what's happening is you're actually getting bidding wars in the rental market. So what's the, what's, what it's doing is it's actually driving rents up more so than you are actually seeing housing prices down, uh, go up. So what's going to happen is that's filtering through to one third of the CPI. So the inflation data could stay elevated for longer because housing is not going to necessarily be a drag on the inflation component of the CPI, which means that the Fed may stay at the party too long. And you can argue they may already are staying at the party too long. But right now, in terms of fixed income, um, I think there's a lot of value there. Typically, when you're now able to get 5 to 6% essentially risk-free going out at least a year, and I think that buys you enough time. So if stocks are going to give you, let's call it historically, 8 to 10%, you're not getting that much for. So on a relative risk basis, fixed income looks very, very attractive. With that said, long term, and even though I'm a fixed income guy, stocks, which have given you 8 to 10%, are a better long-term investment. And even though valuations do a little, look a little high right now, I don't expect short-term interest rates to stay at these elevated levels for more than another six to nine months. And then I think they're going to start to decline. I also don't think, though, they're going to fall to the zero to 1% rates that we've had, uh, which feels like we've had that for about a decade or a good part of the decade. Uh, I, I expect that rates would come down maybe, you know, one to two percentage points from where they are right now. Uh, that should also assist a little bit in affordability. But I think the reason that they would be lowering rates is because the economy then would be slowing down, which means that housing, I think, will, will not, will not do as well if unemployment goes up which is what I think the main reason would be why the Fed would be lowering rates. So I think, let's see here to unpack that. You, uh, so I gave you like a multi-layered question. You answered everything. So I'm guessing on mortgage rates themselves, it sounds like they're not going to go much higher from these levels. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I, I think they'll, they'll struggle to go much higher. We actually have mortgage rates right now trading between 25 and 3% above the 10-year treasury, when typically they trade to 1 and 1.5%. So that already is a wider spread than it typically is. Now, banks, I think because, number one, they have a lot of losses on their books, as we've seen. The Federal Reserve has losses on their books. Um, so I think there's going to be, there's already been cracks. I know we're talking about residential real estate, but there's definitely been cracks already, certainly in in um, in commercial real estate. So I think lending t uh, standards are going to tighten and only the highest quality buyers are going to get mortgage if you go through typical Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac standards. Where I work at Imperial, we're actually involved in what they call the non-QM space where people are, if they're, they have typically low W2 income, but are have very good FICO scores, those people are coming to are buying those types of mortgages, which are typically one to one and a half percent above a conventional mortgage. But I don't think right now you're going to see rates go much above where they are right now. I think again, the today's indices um, NAHB already shows you that above seven percent, you're really seeing a struggling housing market already, and that builders are losing confidence now that rates are this high. And it's actually impacting jobs. You know, a lot of people talk about the job market being so strong. That happens to be an industry because there's less real estate agents now because there's less inventory. 
and even just mortgage brokers overall. You, you have less mortgage brokers because there's not as many closing as there were. So originations of new mortgages are just down. So really, the, the, the main game in town has been the very, very low inventory and the home builders building where they can because that's really the only game in town. Yeah, great points. That's a great point too about the difference between mortgage rates and like the the bond market treasuries. I mean, I just mentioned earlier that mortgage rates are kind of near those highest levels since 2001, but I think the 10-year treasury is it's it's knocking on the door of its highest level since 2007. So, interesting points. Okay, so given this backdrop, what should investors be thinking and doing right now in your opinion? And where are the opportunities down the road and what about housing stocks, home builders? There are another three for one. Okay. So there, there are different types of housing stocks. For example, if you look at REITs, and I'll just use VNQ as an ETF that a lot of people look at, it's actually flat one year. It's actually flat for five years. You're collecting a dividend. So it's basically been like being in a money market fund for the last five years. However, if you look at XHB, which is the home builders ETF, it's not just home builders themselves, but so you're not just getting Toll Brothers, you're getting things like Home Depot and Lowe's. And those things have done very, very well, particularly since the pandemic, if people have been just putting money into their houses. So I think I'd rather own a broader index of home builder stocks that are going to give you things like a Home Depot and a Lowe's, because I think that those things will be fine, as opposed to just owning straight real estate, which I think the prices are going to drop. So that's where I would look at in terms of how I would how I would buy and invest in in, uh, in real estate right now. Cool. All right, so rolling it all up, so you've kind of already touched upon this a little bit, but what is your view on the economy moving forward? Kind of going broader. So it's not, we're just talking about housing. We're talking about the broader economy at this point since we've got you here. I think there's no doubt, even though the GDP for the third quarter looks like it's going to be its best quarter in a long time. In my opinion, the economy is slowing down. All right, when I look at the employment numbers, they're getting worse. I mean, they're, they're slowing down. They're, they're, they're much, low, you know, they're hiring. Look, almost everyone has a job, but in terms of actual hiring going forward, it's the numbers are clearly slowing down. We, we are in a period of disinflation, certainly not deflation, which is what I, th- I think that we're going to need. Uh, I think a lot of this pandemic money, that this free money that was given out is, is running out. People had it for two or three years. And it's just, it's just running its course. I think it's just taken a lot longer for the economy to slow down. And if I was to put the primary reason why that has happened has been because interest rates were so low for so long that people's housing costs were the one cost that really didn't go up. So the combination of housing costs staying unchanged and then having this pandemic money, which is now running out, I, th- I think that's what's held up the economy. But going forward, I think we're going to clearly slow down. If we have a recession, and I, again, technical recession or not, um, the Fed, I think it will be very, very quick to react to that. They said that they won't, but I think that they will. And that would that will, that will, will, to me, keep the economy from slowing down significantly. So it won't take long for them to reverse course, which would then put a lid on how much the economy, I think, goes down. But right now, I think we're, we're in the beginning signs of a slowdown from where we were. And I expect that that's going to continue, certainly for the remainder of 2023 and into 2024. And I know that people are expecting a good holiday season. I don't think it's going to be as good as everyone else thinks it's going to be. People are just, I think a lot of people, particularly on the lower to middle end, are struggling just even just going to the supermarket. 
think anyone that goes into like a Costco or a supermarket, you're paying, you're not paying five or 10% more. You're paying 10, 20, 30% more than you were a year ago. I always use a, pl- a slice of pizza as my favorite example. And the price of pizza never goes down. So prices just don't go down on certain items. So a year ago in New York, if a slice of cost three bucks, now it costs $4. And if you put a topping on, it's at least $5. That's a, that's a 25 to 33% increase. It, just about everything. I go to, I shop in Costco every two or three weeks and 80% of the items from every two weeks are more expensive than they were from the prior time I've gone there. Do I think that the pace of, inc- of increases has slowed down? Sure. But disinflation isn't enough right now for most people because if you just say disinflation, or even if you have it just stay baseline, it's going to be that people are going to just struggle with the prices at these current levels, even with inflation at zero. You're going to need deflation on many, many sectors of the economy for it to rebound from here. People are just going to run out of money. That stimulus money is basically gone for a lot of people, and you're seeing it already. Credit card debt has increased. Delinquencies are starting to increase. You're seeing it also in, on, on, auto, on auto sales so and auto loans. They're just defaults are, go, are going up. The reason you're not seeing housing, because that, as we discussed, most people's housing is fixed and it's at a low rate. And it's the last thing that they're going to they're going to try to be uh, late and default on. A lot of excellent points there. You're right. Even though economic momentum appears to be picking up again, it was sort of this burst of activity here towards the end of the, the summer in terms of travel, in terms of people going to concerts, stuff like that. Now the yep. cash is gone and, and things are starting to normalize. And of course, when it comes to the interest rates, it's long and variable lags, right? The old Milton Friedman saying. So it takes a while for that stuff to bite. Yes. So I hear what you're saying. All right. So to wrap it up on housing before we move into the scenarios, is there anything else we should be talking about? Like, I, I bet you have ideas on this. So let's just say housing cracks, you know, and it starts to falter. Is there anything that the government would could do or would do to kind of fix the situation? So I've had this theory for about a year. And the way that I would do it, and I just don't know that the banks are going to be accepting this, is... If you treat it, if you want to get inventory up and get people to be, to move on housing, you treat your mortgage as an asset, almost taking it and making it portable. So for example, if I have a $500,000 mortgage, 3% right now, I don't want to necessarily trade up and go buy, a, excuse me, a house for $800,000 at 7%. Not only my, my payment's going to go up, I lose that 3% mortgage. So my, my, my payment goes up so sig- significantly. I want to basically, Walk into another house and say, here is my, my essentially my, almost like from Charlie and the, Chac- the, Charlie and the Chocolate Factor. Here is my golden ticket. I have this $500,000 mortgage at 3%. And I want to be able to utilize that and make it portable that if I want to go, Rusty, and go buy your house, so my $500,000 house, I go my, with my $500,000 mortgage. Okay, my house is worth $700,000. I want to go buy your house, which is a million dollars. So I want to take that and say, all right, Rusty, I'm good now. I got $500,000 right now that I qualified for because the government has allowed me to, to transfer or use this, this, uh, this golden ticket of 500000 at 3% that I can now apply towards purchasing your million-dollar house at 3%. Now, are banks going to like that? No. Is it going to cost money? Absolutely. But I think at some point in time, that would be something that I would look to do if you want to get the housing market going and if people are not going to be able to, to move at all and, and, and the way to sort of like 
if you want to call it, give incentive back to people. That's a way that I would I would do it is to is to make your mortgage portable from one residence to another. Man, I was trying to throw you a curveball. You just hit a home run with it. So you just can't trick Mark Pfeffer. That's that's pretty. Oh, cool. you can trick me plenty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we're going to go into the scenarios. So here comes the creative tension. So uh, I'm I'm hoping you'll push back on some of my scenarios. Hopefully you don't push me so far as like to tell guests, you don't push me off the cliff. But so again, I'm going to give you some thoughts on some scenarios and how they might impact the stock and bond markets. I'll ask you how they sound and how might you adjust them. So here's my base case that I'm working with right now. Housing prices kind of given all these cross currents remain stable. They don't go up, they don't go down. So the Case-Shiller Index is, we'll call it flat. In that environment, since there's no major disruption to real estate, I'm gonna say S&P prices are up three to 5% over the next 12 months. 10-year treasuries, uh, the yield is four and a quarter to four and a half, and GDP is two and a half to three percent. Kind of my base case scenario, kind of a, kind of a middling through is uh, kind of these cross currents kind of work each other out. Where would you push back at? So that's to me essentially right where we are now. Yeah. And this to me is just a question of time that people are going to run out of money. So I just think right now it's going to be very, very difficult to keep. If you keep those numbers, that means mortgage rates are going to stay at 7%. I think that the economy is going to struggle and I think the stock market will struggle um, at those levels. Because at that point, if you want to get stocks at 3 to 5%, why do that? I can go get 5% or 6% tax risk-free in, in, in T-bills. I mean, the auctions are coming at 540, 550. Why do I need to be in stocks at 3%? The stock market, to me, goes down in that scenario. What about, uh, so yield, you think, probably, again, not much movement there? Well, if in that scenario, I think, I, I think well, when you talk about yields, if, if housing prices stay here, yeah. okay, then I, think, then I think yields would stay here. So um, that means that the housing market is accepting of these types of levels. But I don't, I don't think that that's what's going to happen. I think, that th- I think it's going to be very, very difficult for the housing market to, to, to stay here. So as much as I want to push back the base case scenario, even though that's not a scenario that I see occurring, because that's not my base case, that's a base case, is flat. And it's almost the market where we are right now. If you look at the last 12 months, housing is up about 3%. In, in the last 12 months, it's up about 40% over the last three years. But over the last 12 months, it's up about it's, a, it's up about 3% and declining, meaning so we're, we're getting towards an area where it looks like we're going to go to housing where, where it is roughly at zero before it starts to go negative. And by the way, I don't think housing going negative is that bad of a thing. Yep. All right. So before I go to my good case and bad case, yep. which I might have to adjust already, what is your base case for housing prices and how that impacts stock and bonds? So my base case is that housing goes down minimum 5 to 10%. And I don't look at that, as I said, I don't think that's a bad scenario. So take a $500,000 house from three or four years ago. And again, people like to count at the top. That house is now worth 700000 That's a 40% increase. If you took a 10% drop, that takes it down to 630000 So if houses, that means from three or four years ago, going from 500000 to 630000 is still a 20 to 25% increase in housing in three to four years. That's still better than a historical return in the housing market, which Case Shiller, I believe, is roughly 4.5% over, over time. So I think that housing is going to drop at least 5 to 10%. That's my base case. It 
if interest rates stay high like this, then I think it'll drop even more. So how, how does it impact the stock market in that case? I, I think stocks, so the stock market, I think goes lower initially and then it rebounds. Why? Because I think the Fed is going to have to lower rates. I go back to, Rusty, since you and I have had the wisdom of experience and the time of experience in the market. Housing, which a lot of people may not realize, was from 1987 to 1997, when the stock market crashed in 87, real estate was down for about a decade. And in the early 90s, the Fed started cutting rates. The stock market did fine with housing not participating. I think the economy won't necessarily do well without having housing participate, but the stock market can still do well. And the stock market to me will do well because the Fed will be cutting interest rates. So companies, technology stocks in particular, I think would start, would, would continue to do well as rates decline. And you've seen that even over the course of this year when, when interest rates have either stabilized or start to go down. And you want to call it the Magnificent Seven, as, and I don't like to just use those seven stocks, but generally speaking, technology stocks have done well when you start to see any sort of decline in interest rates. Awesome. All right. So I'm going to keep pushing here on this base case scenario yeah. for 10-year treasury. So it sounds like your expectation is that they will drift lower in your base case. Yes. There could be, for technical reasons, meaning there's so much issuance that needs to come. And a lot of it will be on the short end, which is going to push supply up. And you're probably going to see pushback from other countries buying our debt that you could see our rates go up at least initially. But because I think the economy is going to slow down, there's going to be perceived value in owning longer dated debt let's call it with a four handle on it. So I think rates will eventually push lower. Awesome. All right. So I'm taking notes on all this. That's, that's good intellectual collision right there. All right. Let's go to my good case. And when I say good case, I'm really talking about a good case, not just for housing, but for the stock market. So I think in this case, let's say the economy and the labor markets remain more resilient than expected. So it continues to su surprise people to the upside. So I have the case Schiller index in this case, a good case scenario up 5%. I have the S&P up 10% plus. And bond yields, they keep moving higher and to four and a half to 5%. All right, this is a good case. Right. So that's where I'm going to push back. I do not see that the first, the stock market and the economy doing that well with interest rates moving up another 50 basis points from here. I just, I just don't see that scenario. You're seeing cracks already in real estate with levels here. You want to attack on another half a percent. I think stocks go down. And I think the economy goes down on, on, on all those scenarios. I just don't see how it's possible. Can you have the economy do well and the stock market do well? Not at those levels. So that's where I'm going to push back on you. I don't see it happening at rates at four and a half to five percent, which means mortgage rates are now at seven and a half to eight percent. I just don't see how that's possible that with affordability being where it is now, I don't see how it's possible that you're going to get the scenario where the economy is doing well, the stock market is doing well, and, and the housing market for sure won't do well. And I think it's very difficult for the economy to do well, as we just discussed, without having it part being participated in the housing market. So I said, stocks can do well without housing, but the economy to me is very difficult for it to do well without housing. Yeah, this is a really good point. So I actually had the economy doing well, so that was pushing up interest rates, but you think interest rates are actually the first step. So let's say the good case scenario is, let's say 10-year treasuries dropped to 3.5%. So let's say they drop. Now, how does that impact the Case-Shiller Index and the stock market? So I am assuming 
that if interest rates drop, it's going to be because unemployment is starting to go higher and the economy is slowing significantly to get that much of a drop. So with that said, I don't think that the housing market per se is going to do significantly better. As we discussed, I feel it's fairly insulated both ways right now, meaning I don't think that people – the job market to me is the, is the key to the housing market more than anything else. More So if the job – if people have jobs, the housing market to me will be fine. But interest rates, because they're sensitive – or insen- I'm going to call it insensitive now both ways, meaning that it doesn't really matter. If people aren't moving – because rates are at 7 or 8%. You can send them up to 30% and it really doesn't matter. People aren't moving. They've gone too high for people to, to move. So I, I call it, people are really house prisoners. They're just not moving right now. They're going to have a tough time moving because they're not going to take on that additional debt. So you're going to trade up by a more expensive house and then take on the additional debt that goes with it. People are just not doing that. So unless you're a, a cash buyer, the, the, the interest rates are already too sensitive for most people. So with that said, if mortgage rates move down, you know, one to two percent, okay. So the people that have bought houses for the last year or two, which is not a significant portion because inventory was so low, but those people then will have an opportunity to refinance. So those people will benefit by lower rates. But I don't think all of a sudden that inventory is going to pop up. If the job market, which in that scenario, I think it gets worse. So that's that's the issue. So if it's, interest rates are going to drop one to two. 2%. It's because unemployment now has at least a four handle. The stock market may or may not be lower, but the job, you know, but with the job market being lower, then, you know, uh, then I think people will may, may look to move because they won't be able to make their housing payment. But I think the housing payment is the last thing to go. As I said, credit card debt, people will take that on first and car loans before they worry about making, before they won't make a house payment up. That's, that's really, that's the, that's the epicenter of what people's lives are is there is where they're living whether they own their house or whether they they're whether they're renting but what could come down is inflation would come down in that case because I think at that point rents go lower if, if housing costs go down because then there'll be competition and right now there isn't a whole lot of competition because rents are higher because people aren't moving and I think as I said the Fed is creating a bigger problem by taking rates higher they're actually sending re- rents higher which is keeping the CPI number so it's like a bad loop that they're in right okay, now. So, okay so in this scenario let's say Unemployment rate goes up a little bit. Inflation comes down a little bit. Mortgage rates drop as a result. The housing market remains stable. How does the S&P 500 do in that environment? I think it'll depend on the sector. I think the technology sector will do fine. Um, But I think, I know you're a value guy. And I think that those type of, <laughs> so the, although banks, banks have actually, they've done well over the last year or so outside of SVB, the large money center banks, JP Morgan, for example, has done very, very well. Uh, you know, the regional banks, you know, have obviously struggled since SVB, but I, I think that certainly some of the banks, depending on what the yield curve looks like. So if interest rates drop and you start to have a re-steepening the yield curve, then banks can make more money. And that's the other thing which we haven't really discussed right now. We've had an inverted curve, which has hurt, hurt banks for a while. So I think that that also has to happen, that you start to see the, the unwind of the inversion of the yield curve. So I think long-term interest rates may end up staying at let's call it four four percent or so, and you can take short term rates down to four percent. So you get rid of that eighty basis point inversion that you have right now, and you take it down, and then eventually you can have a positive yield curve, which could help stocks like banks. But I also think for sure it's going to help 
technology stocks. All right. So I think I know how you're tracking here. Let's try the the bad case here. Let's see if this plays out. So hopefully it doesn't play out, but this is the bad case. All right. In this case, inflation, we get another wave of inflation and therefore interest rates remain high, if not higher. The long and variable lags finally bite unemployment as well. So in this particular case, let's say 10-year treasuries move towards four and a half, five percent The Case-Shiller index for housing drops 10% and the S&P drops 20%. So again, in this case, inflation remains higher, therefore interest rates remain higher. Okay. What, is, what so, does that do to housing and stocks? So we had last year, we had the stock market drop 20%. And the housing market remained just fine, right? It actually increased, even though stocks went down. Why? Because the job market was still strong. And companies were still hiring out of the pandemic. And if the job market remains in decent shape, then I think we're totally fine. I just feel like in terms of housing, the job market holds the key. Until we st start to see layoffs, firings, in more than just, let's call it an isolated sector, like the mortgage market, like the like isolated technology jobs that you had in California, um, until you start to see broad-based layoffs, I think the housing market will be fine. Yeah, but in this case- I, I don't see housing prices can drop 20% right now unless the job market really, really- Well, in this really particular case, in the bad case, we do have unemployment moving higher, Finally, it does crack. It isn't just normalizing. It actually is faltering, kind of like had you imagined it before. But also inflation also rises. So we have inflation rising. We have unemployment rising. So the inflation, to me, won't be coming from housing. That means you're talking about inflation coming from other areas. I don't see how housing will be contributing to the inflation component because I we just discussed. If you're saying the case shiller is dropping 10 to 20%, how is inflation going higher? That means it's going to be food prices, car prices, just normal. I mean, you can have like a, right, we go to war so we can have elevated uh, an oil spike that goes like we did years ago to $150. So it's going to have to be inflation that comes from other areas because you're now talking about 10 to 20% drop in housing prices, which is going to be subtracting from uh, inflation. So that means the other 70 or 80% or 90% is going to be additive so much. So that's going to be, look, that would just be a, to me, a horror show. The stock market won't go down 20%. It'll go down 30 to 40% if you have that. And I don't think just you get, I think you have layoffs. I don't think you have just layoffs. You have significant, you can get five to 6% in unemployment in that scenario. That is obviously the worst case scenario, but it's in, you're talking about getting inflation outside of housing. Um, and the stock market for sure would drop. and But I, it's hard to imagine that inflation can go up significantly without having, having that contribution from housing going yeah. up. It just seems like the, the component is too large of inflation. You know, if it's one third, then if, all, you know, if one third of, of, of the CPI is housing, it's hard to see that inflation can go up. It's possible, but you're going to need an extraneous uh, like external force, like as I said, oil going to one hundred and fifty dollars. You know, we're gonna have to go to war. We're gonna have some sort of uh, something, some sort of government spending plan that's in place that's just again out of the ordinary. So you would need a unique circumstance, I think, for all those all those things to happen. Yep. 
That's all. It just seems unlikely. Right. Right on. All right. So obviously this topic has been on residential real estate prices and what are the uh, potential impacts could be from that. But what other risk are you thinking about in the economy right now? So I think overall that risk has remained high for a lot of people in terms of how they're allocated. Uh, When you look at Yes, we had a drop in the stock market last year for the first time in a long time. But overall, I think people are unbalanced in nature on how they are, they are between their, let's call it stock bond allocation. And I'm not going to go by a 60-40. But I think what people need to do is really look at their holdings. And Rusty, I know you'll like this. We look at home cooking. I think people need to look abroad for investments. I think you need to look outside of the, of the box of what you normally look at. But there's nothing wrong with I would trade up in quality and I would diversify my holdings and looking at places outside the United States. So because the markets are expensive, but they can remain expensive for a long time. So that's really what I would I would look at is making sure that you're balanced for the risk that people are comfortable with. But trading up in quality and trading up and trading down in risk wherever you are. So that's so. if you're somebody that basically buys bonds, then quite frankly, I probably would just go in making sure that you're in high quality bonds and maybe you're not being necessarily in, in, uh, in high yield bonds. I would go from high yield bonds to maybe investment grade bonds. If you're in investment grade bonds, I probably would go to treasuries. I'm in treasuries. I'm probably going to go a little bit shorter in nature, even though I think interest rates are going to go down. I think you have the benefit of time. So I think it's really now looking at your portfolios and making sure that the quality of your portfolio is where you want it to be and that you're balanced of where you want to be. And I think there's a lot of portfolios that are unbalanced because the stock market has had a great run over the last decade, notwithstanding you know, a couple periods of time. The end of, I think, 2018, you had it during the six months during the pandemic. You certainly had it in 2022. But we've We've recap, you know, we've recouped all the losses from last year. And over the last decade, we're up about 200% in stocks. So that means there's a lot of people that are unbalanced. And then the last thing, because I'm now in this alternative market spot, I think that's the other place to look. Look at private markets, look at alternatives. There are other places to go that maybe that haven't been conventional to overall lower your risk profile as well as diversifying your risk profile. Uh, you know I love the song of diversified portfolios. That's right. Great. Well, again, regarding all these scenarios, again, this conversation that Mark and I had does feed back into the Orion Risk Intelligence scenarios. And for more on Orion Risk Intelligence scenarios, you go to the Orion Risk Intelligence website. In the upper right-hand corner, you will see a hamburger menu. And there you'll see a scenarios drop-down. This includes a scenario library, stress testing, a hedging wizard, and war room webinars. So, Mark, this has been great. As advertised, I knew we would get creative tension on this. I kept taking notes, like altering my scenarios like a bunch of different times. So thank you. I knew that was going to happen. It was a lot of fun. And I do think out of all the podcasts I have had, I think you've been one of the most frequent guests and you'll be on again in the future. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rusty. Have a great day. Yep, you too. So that'll do it for this month. Invest well and be well. If you have feedback on this podcast or suggestions for scenarios, please let me know at my email, rusty at orion.com. Thanks for listening to Weighing the Risk. And I thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. See you next month.
Thanks again for listening. I truly appreciate you giving us some of your invaluable time to listen. I hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might like some of our sister podcasts in Orion. First, we have the weekly The Wang Machine podcast, which I co-host with Robin Murray. The topics we cover are intended to be of interest to financial advisors and investors to hopefully make the markets and investment strategies easier to understand. Next, we have one of the top rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance. It's New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Daniel Crosby's weekly standard deviations podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. For more, including commentary, videos, and other great content, please check out the website, orion.com. Go to the resources drop-down menu and find me, plus a wealth of content I create just for you under Thought Leaders. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next month. Weighing the Risk is hosted by Rusty Vandeman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion. If you have any feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send me a note at my email address, rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including from our podcast guests, are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon on the basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants considered reliable. Thank mm-hmm. you.